Are you looking for freedom? Freedom from the daily grind and hustle? Or just finding a way to live the life you always wanted? Then join us on the Investing for Freedom podcast. Our host, Mike Ayala, will help you discover new ways to find freedom with tips, insights, and interviews. You'll learn the exact systems he's used to travel the world and live his best life. True success and happiness are all about freedom. And here's your roadmap on how to find freedom on your own terms. Welcome to the Investing for Freedom podcast. Here's your host, Mike Ayala. Thank you for joining me on the Investing for Freedom podcast. Today, we've got a really interesting and unique guest on the show, and I'll stress unique. Uh, <laughs> uh, Steve Valentine and I have been you know, friends. Uh, I think we met originally in a mastermind with Chris Harder. Um, I think this was 2020. And, and I've, just, I've always been curious about the way that Steve uh, thinks about real estate, thinks about investing, but also has built a business around it. I've always been you know, one that uh, even when I first started investing in real estate, you know, I was I was buying a lot of deals when I I didn't have a lot of money, I didn't have the capital, a lot of creative financing, and so I did that a lot, you know, on my own. But Steve Steve has really built a niche and a business around this, just helping other people do that. And so, Steve, I'm really excited to have you on the show and kind of dive into the way your brain thinks and how you get things done. Well, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, it's going to be a fun conversation. So let's get into the four questions. If you could narrow it down to one thing that has had the greatest impact on your success, what would it be? The one thing, as bad as this may sound, but it was the death of my father in 2015. Wow. So there's uh, one of my coaches uh, that I was working through at the time of my dad's death. I was very upset with how he was handling things and what had gone on. And she told me there's both good and bad things we take away from our parents. And the things that we didn't like, we need to change those and change the generational side. So in 2008, 2015, uh, my dad bought a thousand homes from the trustee sale foreclosures for investors. And so when that, when that happened, he was working for them, not with them. And so it kind of changed my mindset. And he, he didn't really buy anything for himself in that time. He wasn't thinking outside the box with, you know, okay, well, maybe I can borrow some money from some of these guys so I can build my own portfolio. And so he passed unexpectedly at age 63, owning maybe maybe one or two properties on the one that they lived in and, and one other property that was in the company. But that was it after all of his genius and being in the business 40 years. So that was probably the greatest impact as to, you know, where my business went from there. You know, it's such an interesting um, point, and I, I don't want to get too ahead of ourselves here, but you're, you're a real estate agent, you're in the real estate industry. And I've seen this so many times. I mean, even as a, even as a real estate investor, it takes a very, very, um, special type of real estate agent, um, to understand investing and to really work with investors. But I'm surprised at how many, you know, real estate agents, business owners, um, you know, even again, just back to real estate agents that don't understand the asset side, the wealth building side, the cash flow side of the business. Um, and so I think it's just really interesting that, you know, your dad did all that and built all that and, and did it for everyone else, but didn't do it for himself. Right. Yeah. And that was back in the times when you could buy four walls and a roof for 20 grand, you know, in those days, and we'll never see those days again, but it's like, that's one of my biggest regrets was not being mindset prepared for the investment side or opportunity. And so one of the things about that, the real estate thing, interesting stat is that only about five to 6% of real estate agents actually own an investment property. Hmm. 
And the reason that is, is because when we go into real estate school, they don't teach us anything about the real estate investing. It looks good, but there's also a lot of myths around it that people, I don't have the down payment, I don't have the things. And there's all these different house hacks that you can do to get to that point. You know, one of my early mentors, his name was uh, Barry Lipparelli. And, you know, he owned a, he owned a real estate agency. He owned an insurance company. At one point in time, for many years, he was the uh, county um, assessor. He owned an appraisal office. And from the very beginning, he told me, you know, there's like any business that you're going to get into, you want to get into a business that has a low, a low amount of overhead, et cetera. And he told me, you know, insurance, real estate from a broker's perspective, because unless your agents are really selling something, they're not really costing you very much. Right. And it's the same thing with insurance companies. But it's interesting to me. What did you say the stat is? Six or seven percent? Only six to seven percent in all the rooms that I've spoken in over the years, only six to seven percent of the room. Um, owns rental properties. Man, that is just an insane stat. Why, you know, I, I've talked to so many people that were like, you know, along the way they had their awakening. It's almost like the matrix and the red pill. Like all of a sudden one day, you know, they're doing all this work like your dad was doing all this work right. for other people. And I think people either have their awakening where they see, you know what, I'm sitting here making all this money for other people and I'm not doing it myself. When was your awakening? Was it? Dad? So it was right after my dad passed. And, uh, you know, I started to see things because when he got sick, he had uh, terminal cancer for nine months and I had to run, I had to run his business with my mom so that everything was stable when, when he passed. And I started seeing things and going, well, why would you do all this work for this person at this amount? And one of the investors that, that he did a lot of business with was very greedy, really treated my dad, not great and always made a lot of promises to my dad. So I started looking at things. I'm like, well, if I can borrow money, just like what this guy is doing, why can't I do some of this for myself? And so that's what we started doing is we started having conversations with people about lending money. So, you know, typically, you know, an agent will go and find a hard money lender, right? Which is expensive. You got to jump their hoops. You have to have down payments. And so we started raising capital through our clients. So our wealthier clients were willing to lend us money and we partnered with them. So we would split the profit 50, 50, and we would do all the work and then they would get the return. And, the myth for most agents is that I can't or I don't have the money or I don't have this or that. And they're not looking at all the other ways that are possible. So interesting. Uh, shifting to question number two, what was your greatest setback and what did you learn from it? Oh, greatest setback was 2007. So we were the team. We were a team with my parents, my wife and 2007, um, we lost our house to foreclosure before it was popular and we, we took our eye off the ball. So my dad was, you know, Hey, I want to build all these construction entities. We had 75 employees, 25 fleet vehicles. And it, we took our eye off the ball. We were spending so much time trying to run that, that we didn't focus on the real estate aspect and see what was coming down the pipe. And so in 2008, lost our house to foreclosure and we had personally guaranteed more than a million dollars worth of debt. And we'd put more than a million dollars into the companies and all that went away. And it was starting from zero. So, you know, we, uh, I just learned a lot from them. In fact, I have this accordion file that I keep, like, what are the lessons that I learned? Right. And so it's like, when you look at this market now, we were constantly setting ourselves up for the next opportunity zone, right? Putting money away in reserves, building relationships and being ready to capitalize on a shift in the market where you tend to get better deals and you're starting to get a little bit more creative on things. And so it really, that was the setback that really brought us 
to the comeback that we had because over, we got into the REO business, uh, real estate owned, we sold probably 5,000 homes for Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac over that five year period of time. And we were able to pay off all of our debt the back debt that we owed, we were able to keep afloat, put some reserves away. And it was just a head down grind. But that was that was a huge lesson learned on reserves and stability and all those pieces. It's interesting. If you had to do over again, what are a few of the things that you would have done then that you're currently doing now? I would have learned a lot more about real estate investing when I first got into it. Like to really understand it. I mean, I was getting bits and pieces of it from my dad, but I probably would have shifted my focus about 50% on investing and 50% on the traditional real estate business. Because I still believe that the traditional business is your real estate license is your greatest opportunity to create wealth, especially if you're a residential agent. Because if you're training yourself to be your own client, when somebody calls and says, uh, you know, I just inherited my mom's house, a hoarder house, I don't have money to fix it, I don't want to put it on the market. Rather than chasing the extra 3% commission, they would be chasing the money to buy the deal. Mm, that's good. I like that. What is the single piece of advice you find yourself sharing the most? Don't look for opportunity, but be prepared for opportunity. Mm. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah. So in, in the residential side, we're getting these calls. And, you know, just like the example I just gave you. And we have to, I share more of this where we have to ask better questions of the consumer so that we can ultimately develop a strategy for them. So giving that that advice of being prepared for opportunity is also helping the client structure what kind of opportunities are available to them. You know, most people don't think about, should I keep my house as a rental, right? So they go straight to an agent shows up, they said they want to sell their house, but nobody's saying, well, have you thought about keeping it as a rental? Have you thought about this financial strategy? How old are your kids? Have you thought about college fund? Could this house be a college fund for your kids? And starting to look at all the things that real estate can be, which is, you know, why the company name is Limitless Real Estate Strategies. Because I believe there's infinite possibilities as long as we can see them and help people. And that's really what I focus on right now is just helping people strategize on how to build wealth and build that passive income down the road. I love it. Who's had the greatest impact on your life, Steve? Wendy by far. Yeah. My wife. Yep. Yeah. She is... Uh, She's always played the supporting role and always supported me in, in what I wanted to do and where we wanted to go. And, um, you know, and then she jumped in and, and really, uh, you know, I mean, she's such a great mom and, and wife. And she um, she jumped in when the kids got a little bit older and started doing the construction side of things. And she really, really loved it and enjoyed it. And um, she's very good at seeing it. And um, so that was kind of where, you know, she always was in the background supporting and giving me the push to go do more, um, which was really awesome. That's cool. I dig it. And you guys work pretty closely together. We do. Yeah. What's, yep. what's that like? Because yep. we, it can be trying at times, right? Um, but uh, the uh, the biggest struggle we had working together when she started doing the construction was getting our budgets to come in where they should. Mm-hmm. And she started to create different systems. We use a online platform called Builder Trend that really um, deciphers our bids and gives us the, the solid numbers. And ever since we started using that, the numbers have come in, you know, within 5% of the budget when we do that. And so that's been really good. And it took us a long time to get there. You know, you there's not many people out there that, you know, they go to flip a house and they realize this was a lot of work for a little bit of return. You have to kind of do it in volume. And there's also a lot of risk in it. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, in the current state of the market, we're definitely, we had some houses that we bought in April that we're going to have to pay to get out of um, because of the market shift. And it's, it's part of the deal, right? Um, 
But when she started doing that, we were able to, in the last seven years, she's renovated almost a thousand homes. And so we got, we got pretty dialed in on that. That's pretty cool. I mean, is that most of the time with, with partners and spouses, it's always the money thing. Yeah, it, it always is. And then just getting on the same page too, right? Like I, right. Uh, we had a, we hosted a couple's event at our house uh, this last weekend and there was a guy in here speaking that's um, runs a, you know, pretty successful family office for a, a big, you know, guy that's worth a quarter of a billion dollars or whatever the number is. But, you know, I, I think a lot of it comes down to not having the right information and data, et cetera. And, and, you know, I was just thinking about, and he made this comment, he said, whether it's your personal finances or whether you have a million dollar business or a $10 million business or a billion dollar business, not having, you know, the right timely information. And I was just like, that always seems to be the problem is not having the right, you know, financial data. And a lot of times it's because it takes so long to get, um, you know, leading indicators, if you will, because by the time, you know, a lot of times when we know our financial position, it's, it's, I don't want to say that it's too late, but you know, the, if we're, if we're getting financials from six months ago or financial data from six months ago, like it's, it's too late. Yeah. And so I think yeah. really, um, you know, I love the point that you made because whether it's partners, and this is, I'll probably, I'm going to paraphrase it, but whether it's partners or, you know, a spouse or whatever, it, it's always about the money conversation. Yeah. Yep. And just getting on the same page with it. Yeah. So I'm curious because, uh, you know, we discussed 07. Uh, mm -hmm. you, you, I think you said you, you lost everything before it was popular. Is that what you said? Yep. Yep. <laughs> uh, that, that's kind of funny. So we go down the experience, which is valuable, and I appreciate you sharing that. But what are some of the things, because we're kind of, I don't know where we are right now, to be honest, but you know, we're obviously up against some challenges and I'm not, yep. I, I don't love the phrase that we've never been here before, but I kind of feel like we've never been here before. I mean, is there versions of 08? Yeah. But you know, with, with the crazy stuff that actually I kind of, this has been going on for a long time, but after 08, you know, we pumped so much liquidity into the market, which gave us a, a 10 or 12 or, you know, 14 year run, whatever it was, depending on the timing, there is so many challenges and headwinds facing us. I'm curious. 07, you lost everything. You've obviously done pretty well, which I'd like to talk about kind of where you're at today. And then mm -hmm. what do you see coming? So the 07, 08, this is where people have PTSD from that. And this is where some of the fear is being caused in the current market is most people don't realize that that market was created out of false loans because anybody could go out and buy an investment property with zero or you could do the ninja loans, no income, no down payment, no verification. You know, a stripper could go buy a million dollar house and no big deal, right? And everybody keeps telling people, well, you can just refinance, you can refinance, you can refinance. And so, you know, one of my favorite movies is The Big Short, right? When you, when you go down and really see the depth of what was going on was insane. And we don't have that in this market. You know, the, the prices have gradually gone up. Obviously, they shot up during COVID and caused this boom. And then with the economy and the inflation, all of a sudden, the Fed's almost doubling the interest rates, if not more at this point, and trying to slow things down. But if you didn't have to sell in this market, I wouldn't, mm. right? It just doesn't make any sense because people are giving up 2 and 3% mortgages. Now, there's always going to be those people that need to sell, right? No matter what the market is. Yeah. Um, do I see a massive wave of foreclosures coming? No, because there's a, still a ton of equity in the market. Mm -hmm. And you know, over the last five years, there have been zero creative loans, subprimes, there's been none of that. People are either putting big chunks of money down and they're getting good loans and their payments are decent. Cause right now it's way cheaper to rent a house than it is to buy a house. Mm -hmm. But the reverse of that is 
it's also a great time to be a buyer if you can get over the rate shock yeah. because there's more motivation in the market. Uh, the sellers are willing to do more to get out. And some people are definitely selling fear of you need to get out before it gets worse. But if you go back and really think about if you're doing this for the long-term play, and this is where I think some people don't really think about the long-term, like I talked about earlier, having a strategy and a plan in place and not to deviate from it. People that bought and had decent loans in that 04, 05 timeframe, if the plan was to keep the house, it doesn't matter what the value is as long as it's being rented. Your rent's going to go up and down, you know, because back then, I mean, there were so many foreclosures that the rents had gone down to like eight, nine hundred dollars a month. Mm-hmm. You know, it was cheap. And, you know, now the average rent in Phoenix is like twenty three hundred dollars a month. So if they would have just kept that house through the cycle, it would have been paid off and it would have doubled in value. And this is kind of where it is right now is that, you know, people are panicking, but it's being able to ride it out and weather the storm. And again, if somebody needs to sell, they need to sell. It is what it is. But if they didn't have to, I wouldn't. Yeah. So I want to, I want to chat with you and kind of, I, I guess, dig into that a little bit. Um, there's the yes, but comment. Cause I, mm-hmm. I, by the way, I'm, I love having, you know, conversations with people like you, all, all the people from all the sides, right? Because I want to hear all the viewpoints. So the yes, but conversation. So I agree with a lot of, you know, what you're saying. And and one of my yes, buts would be, and I would just love your perspective on this, is just making sure for the people that are listening. Um, one of the yes, buts for me is yes. And, and I've been talking about this, like, I was having a conversation about it last night. As long as, as long as you're going to ride through a market for a certain amount of time, I, I think we're going to be fine. And so I think mm-hmm. the the first yes, but is being able to afford, you know, the the cash flow going through that period. So I'm curious what you're seeing out there as far as you know uh, rental prices, uh, investors and their cash flow. And I kind of feel like we're early on the clock, the economic clock cycle. Um, but but what do you see currently, and what do you see coming when it comes to to rents and cash flow, et cetera? Yeah. So the rents. I mean, obviously, if you're leveraging, um, you know, you're going to have to put a lot of money down to get it to cash flow. Or, or are you getting a good enough deal, buying enough equity to being able to and have the income to absorb the negative on it? So what I mean by that is that if I could buy a five hundred thousand dollar house for two hundred and fifty thousand, but it's not going to cash flow. It might be negative a couple hundred dollars a month. Am I in a position to afford that because of the amount of equity that I bought until I can refinance it or get it into a better rate, right? So looking at some of those and then the value in that is just in the current market is that there are investors still buying. You can definitely get a much better deal when you find the motivation because a lot of times the agents are selling the fear. And so the yes but is that you know we still have an increasing rental market and it's, you know, like I said, if somebody kept their home, their mortgage is way cheaper than what rent would be if they're going to go out and rent mm. and they still own a house and they're still, you know, they still have access to equity, right? They could potentially be moving that equity that they have with a home equity line and maybe buying a rental property. But here's the yes, but it's not going to cash flow right off the bat. Mm. It's just not going to. So it's got to be got to be cautiously optimistic about it yeah. and make sure that you have some reserves and things. You know, I like what you said about, um, you know, the, the interest rate and people not moving. And again, you know, if somebody has to relocate from Phoenix to Austin or Austin to Phoenix, right. they're, they're going to potentially have to sell their house. But also if they have a 3% mortgage or a 2.75% mortgage. And, you know, I actually think that more people are probably going to think about keeping a property like that as a rental. You know, if they had a loan that, you know, they bought this property two or three years ago, they've got a bunch of equity in it. 
Um, they have a 2.75% interest rate. And, and I'll, I'll caveat this by saying even, so I think it was a year and a half ago at a GoBundance event, maybe even two years ago, where um, David Osborne said from stage that debt is the new asset. And man, that stuck with me because I was like, what is he talking about? Debt is the new asset. And he was talking about how interest rates were going to have to climb, which kind of makes sense. I mean, when you look at the economic clock and, right. um, you know, I saw, I, I heard Kevin, Kevin O'Leary say this the other day on Stanberry research. Um, the, the lady asked him, you know, what do you think about all, like inflation and this and that? And he said, well, what the hell did you think was going to happen when we've been printing money for all these years? And then, you know, you pump another 7 trillion into the market over the course of 18 right. months. He's like, right. you know, and, and now all of a sudden everybody's like shocked that we're facing inflation and, and that the fed is like, you know, trying to counteract it and, and put the fire out anyway, debt is the new asset. And so I'm just curious on, on that point. Like I'm trying to reconcile in my brain, Steve, like where, cause yes, some people are going to sell. Yes. There's going to be some foreclosures. Um, but I agree with like most of what you said, there's not a bad, a bunch of bad loans. Like there was right. Karen, and I just closed on our house and it's the biggest loan we've ever done, but I put a lot of money down. They made me put a lot of money down and my interest rates high because we missed the timing, but also it's a 30 right. year convent. Like it's, I, I, it's not a, you know, a floating rate. It's not a, well, I'll, why would they want to float it? Cause it's probably, you know, almost as right. high as it's going to get, but I, even, even this, like, you know, if this was 08, I'd probably be in some kind of weird loan, but no, they made me put a bunch of money down and, and I'm in a, you know, a pretty fixed traditional type loan. And right. so I just, I'm kind of with you, man. I don't, I don't see, I don't see how this kind of all plays out because there's so many people that have interest rates that are so low. If they sell today, they're going to have to go buy a house at a more expensive price point at an interest rate that just doesn't make sense. So I don't see where this inventory problem ends. No. And, and here's the other piece too, is that you look at somebody, it's a conversation I've been having with my students is, you know, we need to focus on the positives of the market, not the negative, right? And some of the things I talked about at the beginning. And so what I asked the students to do was go back the last couple of years, anybody that you've sold like a starter home to go strategize with them that, Hey, we need to set up an equity line, you know, before you, you move out. And this house, like some of the houses that people bought, let's just say in 18, they might've paid like 230 grand for it. Makes a great rental. Their payment is like $850 a month, PITI. That house will cash flow a thousand dollars a month. Now, if it cash flows a thousand dollars a month, they can keep that house and qualify for another one. And they're going to go out and be able to negotiate better. And their rate's going to be higher. Their payment's going to be higher, but the cash flow from this one is going to offset the higher rate until the rates come back down so that they can, okay, they, they bought back here. Now they can come up to, you know, 2022, 2023 and realize, well, I can get all these things. Now I have more choices. I have more options. I don't, I can be super picky about it. Um, and it's time to have that mentality shift rather than I need to sell. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think the other mentality shift around selling is if you're truly going to sell, you have to get over the fact that, okay, the height was in March of this year. Right. If you sold in March, you sold right at the peak. Our market here was up between the stats are all different between 55 and 60% over the last three years. And people are griping about, well, I can't get the price I could have six months ago. I'm like, you had 60% increase. Mm -hmm. What happens if you only get 40% increase out of it? Right. Yeah. So it's that mindset of, well, my neighbor sold their house down the street. I'm like, yeah, well, that was that was six months ago. Here we are now. Well, it's like going to a casino table with a thousand dollars and you're up ten thousand and you walk away with three, but you're pissed because you didn't get ten. Right. Exactly. I mean that I don't know. I, I'm with you kind of on the 
no, I don't think we should be market timers. So it's kind of an interesting. Um, so somebody said the other day, uh, we got a lot of private equity and I just want your opinion on this. And for somebody mm -hmm. that's got their feet on the ground, we got a lot of private equity groups that, you know, have bought a lot of houses and somebody was saying that they're, you know, they're concerned that these private equity groups are going to start, you know, dropping their inventory before, before we drop too far down, which is, could be a self-fulfilling prophecy. Are you seeing any of that or what are your thoughts on that? No, we're not, we're not seeing anybody. It's actually, it's very interesting because Phoenix was ground zero for the iBuyer, right? So the offer pads, open doors, Zillow, and they were buying houses and droves and, and then turning around and reselling them. But none of them were keeping anything. You know, the, the Black Rocks, um, trying to think of invitation homes, people like that, they're all an asset class. Now, single family residential is an asset class inside their stuff. And, you know, their rates of return, especially on the stuff that they bought early on, they won't sell it. If they do, they'll package it up and sell it to another private equity firm. Mm. And that's that's been one of the stat companies here in town, the Cromford Report. I mean, she pretty much said, you know, invitation homes, BlackRock, these types of things. Every time they bought a home, that home will never return to market. Hmm. It'll never return to market because it'll constantly be sold in tapes to other investors. Um, a tape is like a group of properties on um, you know, so they'll do that and they'll horse trade in the background, but for them to go through and, and liquidate, it would make no sense. They would have, if they were going to liquidate, they would have liquidated when we were having multiple offers and all the things that were going on. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. Cause even just, if you, if you took your houses one by one and listed them all, I mean, even just with, you know, the fees and the realtor fees and all of that kind of stuff, it's like the tenants, the repairs, the, yeah. you name it. Yeah, that's a lot. I never even really thought about that. So interesting. And again, I just love getting all the different viewpoints because I don't know what's sure. right and I don't know what's wrong, but that's, that's why I really wanted to chat with you about all this. So um, confirmation bias, um, just curious. Are, are you familiar with the term? No. So a confirmation bias here would be an example. So you and I are both real estate investors. We love real estate. Okay. So we run okay. in our little circle or like real estate agents, real estate sure. agents have a, you know, a vested interest in, in, uh, you know, trying, trying to keep positivity up. So th those right, are, those right. are examples of, of confirmation or information bias. Um, what, what would be some of your, uh, bias that you you've been trying? Cause I'm constantly trying to challenge my own biases. Like what, mm -hmm. what do I not know? Or like, what are the things that I think I know as Mark Twain? I think it was Mark Twain that said that you think are true that really are just not so that's what'll bite you in the butt right so what are some of the what are some of the things that Steve thinks about that you think you know that maybe just might not be true that you're thinking about on a daily basis right now well i mean the direction of the market right now right you're trying to say trying to be cautiously optimistic about it right and not chicken with my head cut off and trying to sell everything that we own and all the things right so um what i believe is true in this market you know is that it's still a great time to invest right some people won't agree with that because interest rates are too high, it's not cash flowing, but it's still something that I'm trying to show people that, you know, your give you a quick example. If you want to, everybody always talks about cash flow on rentals, on rental properties. In order to create cash flow, you usually have to put a ton of money down or you got a really good deal and really good interest rate. And so when I explain that to people, it's like, look, I agree with all that when you're investing in real estate, but if I want to buy $300,000 of stock in Tesla, I have to have $300,000. If I want to buy a $300,000 asset in real estate and it's my first home, I have to have $9,500. But I'm getting the rate of return on a $300,000 house, mm -hmm. right? And somebody else is paying off the leverage over time on that. 
you can't do all those things in stock. And I'm not saying put all your eggs in one basket, but I'm saying that's where that's where that truth comes in is getting onto that mental mindset. Did I answer that? Okay. Yeah, no, it's yeah. There's, there's no right or wrong outcome on that. I just always like to, yeah, just kind of think, think through it. So set the black rocks and the eye buyers and all these guys aside the invitation homes. One of the things that I've been watching for a while, and even for a guy that like loves real estate and, and thinks that everybody should get in real estate. I just don't know when, um, right. I've been concerned about this for a little bit and I would love to see what your thoughts are on this. What about maybe the people that are out there that, you know, started investing a year ago, two years ago, and they're buying one or two, or maybe they have three houses in their portfolio that are on some kind of creative financing that, or, or maybe even just some kind of, you know, line of credit type bridge debt or whatever from a bank that has to be permanently refinanced out in a year, two years when it's supposed to be done. Do you think, just from an, like, I'm just thinking about this from an opportunistic standpoint. Do you think that there's opportunity um, for, for us as investors to find people that are going to get caught in a bad market timing with mm-hmm. loans that they need to exit that, that we can step in? Yeah, absolutely. There's going to be, there's, there's a ton of that happening now. I mean, some of the stuff that we bought with traditional hard money six months ago that we either take a $100,000 loss on now or I go borrow money at eight or 9%, put a renter in it and, you know, deal with the negative cash flow for right now. Mm. But the nice thing for the investors are getting a guaranteed rate of return secured by asset. So yes, there's going to be a lot of that people looking for ways out. Um, I haven't had the conversation with a couple of my hard money lenders, um, but I had one on Saturday. He's a private capital guy and he's got two or three loans out right now that people are stuck in mm. because they couldn't sell the house. They're trying to figure it out. What's it going to look like? So yeah, there, there's definitely some, um, some need for the private capital to step in with people. It's interesting on the private capital conversation. And, and again, just want to kind of pick your brain on this. I, I have talked to a lot of people who have money sitting on the sidelines that are just waiting. And I just have this kind of like, (laughs) Ken McElroy said this like four years ago. And of course we were in a completely different time then, but he said, you know, there's a lot of money sitting on the sidelines and he's changed his tone too. So I'm, I'm not quoting him from four years ago saying he's saying this today, but you know, I heard him say this a long time ago that there's a lot of money sitting on the sidelines. And, and when we see this little dip, um, that money's going to come rushing in, which is going to kind of prop that up. Mm-hmm. And so I'm curious, cause again, I'm talking to a lot of guys that have, you know, maxed their line of credits. They're, they're sitting on cash. Um, the whole conversation of cash is trash that everybody was talking about a year and a half, two years ago. Um, a lot of, a lot of really people that I would consider to be really smart or, you know, kind of, uh, they're, they're, they're filling up their powder kegs, if you will, that dry powder. Yeah. Um, so I'm just curious, like also how many people, number one, that, that you talk to that are sitting on that dry powder. But number two, if I'm, I'm just curious if we start to see a 5% or a 10% or a 15% correction, does that capital just rush in and start buying those properties, which kind of, you know, I don't know if the floor is going to be a 20 or 30%. I think it might be a five or a seven or a 10% drop. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I mean, even so, yes, even in this market, I mean, year over year, even with the slowdown, Phoenix is still up 17% from last year, mm. right? And they it's leveling out. We've got inventory, all those things. Um, and I think that's happening, you know, across the US. Some cities are going to get hit harder than others. Um, but uh, that capital, it, it, the capital's there. So the, the, the motivation is out there right now. 
right? So the capital will rush in to start buying those things because now there's motivation to where if you were an investor over the last two years, you're competing with multiple offers and paying stupid prices. And it wasn't a great time to jump in and buy investment properties. Mm -hmm. The only thing that would have been good about it is the interest rate, right? The interest rate would have been premium for the investors. So everybody that tried to time the market right, now the difference is, is, you know, if I use all my cash for this great deal, I can't really leverage it. So it's stuck in one place. Mm. Yeah, because people, it's, by the way, I'm not predicting or projecting. I'm trying to ask really good questions so that I can yeah. figure out what the heck's going to go on, not just with you, but with all of my guests right now. So that, that's a great point because if we, if we spent, if we have to go in all cash and all of our cash is just sitting and, you know, maybe we're getting a six or 7% return and inflation's nine or 10, um, because we can't get attractive financing or financing locks up. That's the other side of that conversation. But also I, I get that completely, but if our cash is just sitting, then what? Like, especially at 10% inflation. Sure. Yeah. I mean, if it's just sitting, it's not working. Right. And that's, that's always the thing, you know, I work with a, with a bunch of different clients that, you know, they've given me credit lines and as mo- as long as the money is working, you know, it's a guaranteed 8% rate of return secured by real estate and they trust what I do, then they just keep letting me roll the money from one thing to the next. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I think that there's people out there, you know, this is kind of my advice to a lot of different people is if you had a bunch of cash and, you know, you're in your, your 60s and 70s, going out and buying rental real estate is probably not the ideal thing to do. Mm. But if you have that cash, create a guaranteed rate of return and income without the risk, the pain, the tenants, all the things, that's probably a better scenario to be a private lender, hmm. right? And hmm. and so I try to lead them in that road. And that's where we've raised a lot of our capital because, you know, right now, if you put cash down, your cash on cash return is like four to 5%. Mm-hmm. If you paid all cash for a property right now, the only way that four to 5% really makes sense if for some people is they need the tax write-offs, right? For depreciation and that asset class. And then um, they're they're getting a great deal on a property. Mm. And that may be the reason. Now they can always go back and refinance, take the higher rate. But if I had a bunch of cash and I was talking to somebody that say, you know, in that 40s or 50s, I would say, look, we're going to leverage it. The rates aren't going to be great. You might be a little negative in the cash flow, which is a write off, but we secured a really good deal on a rental property. And then once, because if you can show them the difference between eight and four, once the rates come back down, we refinance out of this leverage and then it cash flows. But you have to be able to stomach that little bit of negative for a while. Mm. And some people don't equate to this is one of the things I tell a lot of people when they're like, well, it's going to be negative $250 a month. Well, how much money do you put in your 401k that doesn't give you a cash flow? (laughs) Right? (laughs) You're throwing that money out the door. Yeah. um, And it's, it's getting a little bit of rate of return, but you don't have the asset. Right. And the 401k is subject to the market, the economy and everything else. At least the asset can be rented and it's sold, you know, when you're ready or when the market time is right. You know, and I love that you come back to that because one of the first podcasts that I was ever on um, was Buck Joffrey's The Wealth Formula three or four years ago. And he called it Maslow's hierarchy of needs because we were talking about mobile home parks, which is, you know, one of Mm -hmm. our primary investment spaces. And, you know, the basic human need is food, water, shelter. And, and when you, when you bring it back to like the stock market, like there's, there's nothing necessary about the stock market, but when it comes to housing, affordable housing, a place to live, a roof over your head, food, water, shelter, which is really the challenge that we're up against right now with inflation and everything else. If you really believe in housing for the long term and you're thinking about it, I love the way that you just kind of repositioned that for me. If we're thinking about it from the long term, (laughs) so 
and I don't think that you're ever going to advise to be in a negative cash flow position. I'm not going to advise to be in a negative cash flow position. But if you're already in a, you know, I mean, we got all this cash sitting in, what do you do? I think we can all agree that over time, real estate is going to outpace the value of the dollar. And so if you have dollars versus real estate, I mean, I'm going to take real estate all day, every day. I think we just have yeah. to be really careful that we don't get over leveraged or in over our head. So I have kind of a three, sure. threefold question for you as we kind of wrap this up. And I might need to bring okay. you back in four to six months and just kind of see where we're at. Let's do it. So threefold question. What does your portfolio look like today? Because I, I mean, you went, you went pretty much broke in 07, but we didn't get to talk about, you know, right. what you've built. Um, number two, what are you doing right now? And you've touched on, you know, uh, some of that. And then number three, what would you advise, you know, people to, to be doing from a general perspective right now? Yeah. So portfolio wise, we have 85 single family homes in the Phoenix market. Um, they are it's net worth or it's value is roughly 45 to 50 million right now. It depends on how you look at it. And it's the portfolio is leveraged at about 60 cents on the dollar. So and that's the other piece with cash flow is that some of my properties did do really well and some of them might be negative, but the law of average causes it to level out. Right. And then as far as what people should be doing is getting over the fear of what's going on right now and looking at what they can take advantage of in a market where there's motivation, mm. right? So that's the advice I'm giving to my clients, to my investors, to my students is, you know, this is, this is my biggest regret was not being prepared in my mindset in 2008, mm. you know, biggest regret ever. I mean, I'd be retired right now. I mean, you could buy $20,000 home and it cash flow yeah. $400 a month on 18% interest back then. Um, so, and then, what we're doing now is really strategizing and helping the consumer see all the options. So rather than just being the traditional real estate agent, you know, you call and Mike calls and says, Hey, I'm moving to Austin. You know, it's my first home that I lived in. It's this payment. I'm going to tell you, Mike, look, if you don't need to pull money out of it, don't, but if you do, you can get a home equity line white, your primary residence. And then, let's get that set up for a rental because now I want to help you build out for long-term. Mm. And Hey Mike, what happens if Austin doesn't work out and you want to come back? At least you have a house to come back to. Mm. And so getting people to see the, the upside in keeping things rather than selling them is really what I'm trying to do. And it's also showing them the options and the path of what real estate looks like for their future. And most people can't do it because they don't own it. Yeah you know, especially the agents, they're, they're very focused on the commission. And, and that's one of the things I've changed my students mindset about is they teach us when we get in to be focused on gross commission income and transaction count. Mm -hmm. Nobody's focused on net worth or opportunity, or how do we solve the client's problem mm -hmm. in whatever way that looks like. Yeah. So I'm spending a lot of my time kind of counseling people through what to do. We're still buying some houses that we just have to buy them better than what we did because there's still motivation out there. People are still dying. People are still getting divorced, all the things. Mm -hmm. um, so there's still opportunity. And back to what I said earlier, it's about being prepared in mind and finances to take advantage of what's happening in the market yeah. so that you don't miss it. Because yeah. all of a sudden, just like everybody else, right? Everybody always tries to time the market perfect. Last year, you would hear people, I'm just going to wait you know, till the prices come down because they're going to come down nobody expected the interest rates to more than double. Yeah. And so, you know, it costs somebody $700 more a month right now for a $500,000 house than it did nine months ago, 11 months ago. But they would have $75,000 less debt because the competition isn't out there 
bumping the price up over the appraised value. Hmm. Interesting. You know, I love that point you made too. It made me think when you were talking about, you know, people keeping their house, et cetera. I mean, if you have a hundred people, 95 of them are going to say that, you know, my house is my biggest asset, blah, blah, blah. But the reality is it's never really an asset for them until you do what Steve says and either, you know, keep that, turn it into a rental, um, leverage that equity. And so I, I just appreciate that you're out teaching this. And so um, I want to acknowledge that, number one, and just appreciate the conversation. Um, but where do people go and find you? Because I know you do a lot of coaching around this. You do a lot of one-on-one. -on -one, you do group coaching. How do people find you and what does that look like? Um, stevedvalentine.com is the website. That's where my coaching, you can get a free discovery call um, as well. And then I do um, situational awareness, group coaching for agents so that it's a platform for them to come in with something and help let me help them cut it up mm. and show them all the different opportunities um, and how to make them, you know, understand the strategies and understand how to be prepared for opportunity. Um, and then you've got uh, my Instagram is at I am Steve D Valentine. And then I've got a podcast called thinking outside the box. Nice. I like it. Well, again, um, I feel like this was way too short. Uh, maybe I'll, maybe I'll turn you into the, a, a quarterly recap so we can see what's going on. And you know what? I, I'm always curious about like markets like yours too, and experts on the ground, because I feel like, I feel like the Phoenix type markets, the Austin markets, these, these markets are, these markets are ones that we need to watch for different reasons. And they mm -hmm. have different, you know, even Dallas, Dallas is a, is a great market, but it has different, um, demographics, it has different issues and challenges than even what Phoenix does or Vegas or so I'm always curious to have conversations with people like you that are on the ground in those markets that are either, you know, really intriguing or really scary, depending on what time of, of, right. of the world we're in. If you found value in this episode, and you know, someone who's wanting to start or move further along in their journey toward investing for freedom, I would be forever grateful if you would share this show with them and help me get this message out to more listeners. Also, if you enjoy what you've heard, I would appreciate it if you take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and share this with your friends. And until the next episode, cheers to moving further along in your journey of investing for freedom.